Good Sunday morning and welcome to Copper Country Today, Houghton Community Broadcasting's weekly look at the issues and people that are important to the Keweenaw. I'm Todd Van Dyke. This morning, a local charter school is being organized. I'll talk with Nora Lajo and Steve Ajo from the Copper Island Academy. And yes, there will be a Copper Dog 150 this year, but it will be significantly different. Doug Harrer fills us in on how it'll work. Stand by for Copper Country Today, brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. When our community is in need, the Portage Health Foundation is here to answer the call. In 2018, we were here on the front lines helping homeowners get their lives back. And now with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're right here with the many nonprofits who help serve our community. We've provided funding to Senior Meals, Kimono Family Resource Center, and 31 Backpacks. We launched a Wi-Fi hotspot network to help families stay connected, and we have much more planned. If you want to donate to help our community's recovery, visit phfgive.org COVID-19 or call 523-5920. Good Sunday morning. Welcome to Copper Country Today. We are brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. Learn more about them and a number of scholarships that they are offering right now at phfgive.org. Speaking of scholarships, we start in the education department this morning. There is an effort underfoot to establish a charter school here in the Copper Country. Uh, we'll talk about what a charter school is and why we think it's needed with folks from the Copper Island Academy. Nora Lajo is the director. Steve Ajo is the principal. Welcome to both of you, and thank you for joining me on Copper Country today. Thanks for having us, Todd. Yeah, thank you. First question, I guess, because this is the first one of these uh, types of schools that we will have in our region. What exactly is a charter school? So a charter school is a, it's a tuition-free public school. Um, by tuition-free, meaning students who are coming to the school, it's operated the same as your traditional public schools. Um, the school is funded by the per-pupil funding coming from the state government. Um, any student is eligible within the capacities of the school to attend. Um, the one major difference with a charter school is that they are not eligible to go out for bonding initiatives for facilities and other components that your traditional public schools do. So that would be a, an interesting question then to follow up on. If you're not going to be able to get money from the public to build your facilities, how do you afford to buy a building and outfit it for school education? You have to be creative. <laughs> um, obviously, that's, a, that's an area that we, we are working very hard on right now. Um, traditionally, funding in, public, in, in charter school world comes from multiple sources, um, we have had a large initiative from our community that has been um, wanting to support and they have been willing to donate money to initially get us up and running and, and seed that groundwork. Um, there are a lot of grant opportunities. Uh, charter schools really do rely on, on, on a lot of the grant opportunities that come from the federal or the state or private grant uh, components. So we are actively looking at those. Many of them you can't actively get until we receive authorization, but we know those opportunities are out there. Um, and, and there is, you know, when you look specific to facilities, there is a, there are people who are looking at in being involved in an investment opportunity. Um, and in, in essence, they would be owning the building and, and supporting putting up a building, and then the school would lease it back from them. Is there then, um, I have to be a little delicate about this, but there are, uh, there are charter school operators that are for-profit corporations, and then there are others that are non-profit corporations. Are you going to be making money for somebody on this, or is this completely non-profit? No. The, the charter school itself is completely non-profit. And, and we will have that nonprofit status as, as a traditional school is. Um, there are components that may get tied to a charter school. For example, when you look at many charter schools, are, are, um, they have oversight and they work with a, a service provider, somebody who is involved in the compliance, all the components with state reporting, um, oversight of your board and, and your finances and your curriculum. And so they 
as an entity could be a for-profit, but the school itself is a non-profit. Well, and it's not as if there isn't profit in public education. There are people who sell textbooks. There are people who sell equipment, things of that nature, who are, are profit-making. Profit is not a dirty thing. I just wanted to clarify where you where you stood on that. You are not yet authorized, as you mentioned. There's a long process, I know, that needs to be gone through to authorize a charter school to get it ready to open. Where are you on that road? So, Nora, do you want to just talk about the application process, and then I'll follow up with that? Sure. Um, we submitted our application to Central Michigan University on December 7th, and they took a few weeks to review our application and determine if we would um, make it to an interview process. Um, we did have the interview in mid-January, and it went very well. Um, and then from there, there have been several additional follow-up pieces that we've been putting together um, to proceed toward authorization. For example, we've um, submitted a list of names and resumes for our potential board, and they are currently in the process of vetting those candidates to determine the best board with diverse experience, diverse backgrounds, representing different areas within our local community. Um, that's one of the pieces that they're looking at right now and we're doing a lot of other work on the back end um, to submit charter contract documents and things like that as we progress toward potential authorization through Central Michigan's board. What is the timetable? The timetable, um, tentatively, we are looking at being potentially officially approved in April at the uh, Central Michigan's board of directors meeting. So that's when things would become official should this come to fruition. My alma mater, I feel good. So, <laughs> so at this point, would you anticipate and are you planning for an opening this fall? That is the plan, Todd. Um, we, we are working very hard behind the scenes to put together, as Nora alluded to, all these, these time frame and um, different components. Um, there's a lot that needs to happen for that to be a go. The intent all along from the beginning of this initiative was to have a school open and functioning for fall of 2021. Um, with supports from Central Michigan and, and what they have helped us with, they feel like that is very doable. But we have many things that need to fall into place. Um, for it to actually happen. When did this process start? So, you know, I think it's important to, to look at the process for us was this fall, um, August, September. But as a whole, there has been a, a process in place for many years here in the Copper Country where including um, previous attempts to chart, to start a charter school or an alternative to the traditional public education system. Um, we have many parents who are currently and have been for many years homeschooling or seeking something a little bit different. So, and, and many of those have not found the traction that they needed to come to fruition. But for Copper Island Academy, um, it was more this fall. Um, there was a, a large group of community members, parents, business leaders, um, who all started looking at what are some alternatives to the traditional public schools. You know, and, and I think that the charter school model came out because within this, we offer an opportunity to do some things a little bit differently. Um, you know, everybody knows that public school is bound by certain components from your your governmental agencies, whether that be state, fed, etc. Um, which again, a charter school is a public school also, so we will be bound. But when we go through the process of developing a charter, we can try and develop a model that we can be innovative. We can offer. 
services in a way that might be different than what is traditionally out there. And there is oversight with it from, in our case, we're, we're seeking that through Central Michigan as our authorizer, um, where, where they will watch, track, um, analyze, look at goals, look at, in, in our charter contract, they dig into everything we are doing and making sure that our innovative programming is uh, being effective. And, and we're educating students in a way that, that meets the needs of our community and our state. Talking with Steve Ajo, who is the principal, and Nora Ajo, who is the director of the proposed Copper Island Academy. And I call it proposed because it hasn't yet been approved, but it is well through the process. It will be the first charter school ever to operate here in the Copper Country. Steve, how much of that inspiration last fall came from people who were not happy with the way local school districts may or may not have required masks in classes? I think, and here's what I'll say, Todd, I think that, that the current political climate has certainly added an emotional element to everybody at this time. Um, that is the piece that, um, and, and I won't say just um, being against a mask per se, but looking at all of the things. When, when you're looking at students who have been out of school in the spring, um, in the school, out of school, online learning, um, parents and community members feeling like their, their children were missing out. These all tied together to create an emotional climate that did spur more significant and serious thought into what is an alternative that we can offer in our community. Like I said, the, the concept itself isn't new. We have had people talking about this and we've had many conversations with individuals who have been involved in seeking alternatives for many, many years. And, and they are expressing some of those same thoughts that they feel like there are some needs that if we can offer an opportunity and do some things differently, that it's needed. So it, it is true there, that it did uh, help drive that on an emotional standpoint, but to be fair and honest, I mean, we are a public school. So when you look at some of those components that are in place, any mandates that are out, um, we as a public entity, like all schools in the state, would be obligated to come up with a plan, whether that be a back-to-school plan or uh, how do we operate in school within the current guidelines from the CDC, our local health department, whatever our state government has in place at that time. I think everybody can say we hope that things are back to what we would consider normal, um, but we don't know where that'll lead. So we know that those pieces need to be in place. So your website talks about adopting the Finnish educational method. Of course, the public schools in Finland are highly regarded. What is it that you think that you can do differently with children than the local public schools are doing? Well, we, we do. Um, we are prioritizing the, the Finnish model. Um, you know, and, and the Finns kind of burst onto the educational scene from a worldview in, in the early to mid-2000s with their PISA test scores and, and people realizing that, wow, look at, they are right at the top in multiple categories. What is it they're doing? Um, we, we felt it was a strong tie for us because of our community. You know, we, we have, dating all the way back to the mining days and, and people moving to the Copper Country, um, a strong Finnish culture that still stands today. Um, so there's some ties that we wanted to bring in when you talk culture community, ethnic, all of that is, is very strong. When we looked at the educational opportunities, um, the Finns do many things well. And, and while they are a very different country and they operate, you know, their government and, and the way their, their society is, is very different than here in the United States, we felt like there are some key components that we can take from the, the Finnish education model that if we initiated 
we feel like it will bring some some significant growth and and a positive school experience to students in the Copper Country. Um, you know, one of the things that the Finns do is they prioritize uh, an optimized schedule, if you want to say that. Um, students and teachers. Students are often in class for like 45 minutes, and then they get a 15-minute break. The Finns prioritize an unstructured break giving students the opportunity to to develop play and social skills without the guidance and the structure that our society tends to have in place for our youth at this time. Um, during that time, it is also a priority for the staff members to take breaks instead of being preparing for their next lesson. Um, and then they really feel like that's an opportunity to to develop community within the school. Um, the Finns are, are very high on, on developing a, uh, what do we want to call it, a, a, a community where they prioritize their teaching staff and their students. And what I mean by that is they, they try to find time during the day to allow teachers to communicate with each other, to plan, to um, go through professional development, to have student success team meetings, to look at data and, and analyze what's going on in their classrooms. And specifically, we're proposing we really want our teachers to have the ability to know their students very well. And by doing that, they can take data from um, daily formative assessments, things that are going on all the time, not just test scores. But we want them to differentiate. We want them to, to when they know their students, be able to individualize instruction. And they can plan their days to meet those students that are at many different levels, whether that's a student who needs significant supports and services, or a student who is at the other end of the, the educational spectrum and they're, they're advanced, we need to be able to differentiate and prioritize what is it this student needs to, to develop their skills in the classroom. Um, I want to go back, if I can, Steve, to something you said a moment ago about the uh, social structure and the social structure of Finland being, in many cases, kind of similar here. I spoke some years ago, it's been probably a decade now, with a local superintendent who had studied the schools in Finland, had been there. And I asked if she thought that they would work here, and she said uh, she didn't think so, because the structure in Finland is so homogeneous, and everybody pretty much follows the same family-type game plan. If we try to adopt that here, and we go to those people of Finnish heritage of whom there are so many here in the Copper Country. How do we simultaneously make the school attractive and comfortable for people who come from other backgrounds? Well, I, I think that's a key. And, and when I mentioned earlier that, that I know we can't take everything that Finland is and does and transplant that here, we are a very diverse um, country as a whole. You might look at the copper country and say there isn't as much diversity as a whole, but we do have diversity here and, and we need to embrace that. So um, I think a, a big key for us is, is pulling some of these key educational components and, and trying to develop a sense of community that works for the copper country. And we really do want to find a model that parents, community members, no matter where they're coming from, are seeking and, and giving them an opportunity to do something that is a little bit different than the traditional public schools. You know, quite honestly, Todd, we have some very good schools in the Copper Country. We really do. Um, but there are many people who are saying and, and looking at, well, if we could just do this, if we could just do this this way, we feel like that would help develop kids who are prepared, not just for college, but they're prepared for the workforce, the job force. 
they're developing developing some skills. And then in a little bit here, I can let Nora talk about some of the the studio components that we're proposing because that ties in very strongly to the finished model. And that's not predicated to any group of people. All kids need to develop skills that allow them to be successful in life. And there are some things that we're going to do that will allow that. So maybe Nora, do you want to talk about that? Cause that's the key to the finish model also. That, yeah, that real, real quickly. I'm starting, wrong. I'm starting to wish we had dedicated the entire program to this because we're running very short on time here. And I do anticipate and certainly hope that we'll be able to do another program together before the school actually goes online. And once you've gotten your approval in place, but I do want to hit some of the nuts and bolts of this before we run out of the uh, segment here. First okay. of all, I want to reemphasize this is not a tuition school, correct? Correct. So compared to, for example, the Copper Country Christian School, which is an independent school, that's a school where kids have to pay to go, but a charter school does not. They do not. It is a tuition-free school for the, for the students. So any student that wants to sign up, um, when there will be an open enrollment period, if we have uh, capability and ability based on numbers and facilities. Anybody who is on the list is entitled to come to the school tuition free. Um, the only thing that would come into play would be if we have too many students, then it goes to a random lottery process. So we cannot prioritize who gets into the school and we'll have a very distinct process put into place operated by an independent entity or person that will, in essence, draw names as to who gets into the facility or to our school. Will you be fully prepared to accept challenge students, those who are uh, perhaps at risk for economic reasons, those who are physically handicapped, those who are mentally handicapped? Will you be fully prepared to deal with them? Fully prepared and anxious and willing because that's been one of the wraps on charter schools across the state is that, uh, yeah, they're all supposed to take those kids, but in many cases, they kids don't seem to wind up there, and they wind up in the public school district where they cause uh, you know, they are a more expensive type of student to educate. So you are uh, you're going to be on track to bring those kids in. Absolutely, yes. You know, and, and my background is in special education myself. Um, so I have a, a very strong affinity for working with students who have challenges. Um, that's something I, I thoroughly love. And we have some strong resources with our local ISD and the, the support services they have in place. We will be fully prepared to, to embrace learning for all students. What about the effect this will have on other school districts? You bring 50 kids in, uh, they're going to have to start laying off some teachers, I suppose. There, there are potentials of that, Todd. I mean, and that's a reality. We look at it this way, that we feel like we are in the business of developing opportunities that, that support success for all students. Um, not just, and while we are not here to intentionally take away resources from a particular school anywhere in our area, that is a reality. Some people are going to choose to come to the charter school. Um, but I think part of that is in, in how you look at it. And, and that's what we want is we want to make sure that we're developing opportunities for all students in the Copper Country area that meet the needs of our community. What about extracurriculars? Because your students are part of the public school system, will they have access to, for example, uh, the CCISD vocational education program? Will they have access to public school sports teams? So initially, we are, we are going to be a kindergarten through eight school. Um, we will have to look at that um, for our seventh and eighth grade at the junior high level. We do not need to worry about the CTE courses and some of the other athletic components um, because we won't have a high school at this time. Um, we are very strongly involved in the community as a whole. And so we're going to need to work cooperatively with community endeavors, our local school districts, and trying to offer services that will meet needs of kids. Um, some of that is not developed yet. 
Um, we will definitely be looking at how that can happen, and, and we're going to uh, make it work. So there are a lot of questions still to be answered. Obviously, the one of them being, will the actual accreditation come through and what the timetable will be on that? But if folks have questions about what you're doing, you have a website, right? We do. CopperIslandAcademy.org. There is a lot of information there regarding the school, the proposals, our, our model, what is a charter school. There is there's a frequently asked questions page where we address many questions that are out there in the community. So please take a look um, and, and see kind of what values the Copper Island Academy is, is bringing and see if this is a fit for students that you know in our community. Nora Lajo and Steve Ajo from the Copper Island Academy. Thank you, and uh, hopefully we'll touch base again in the future. I think we will need to. Thanks for the opportunity, Doug. Thank you very much. The Portage Health Foundation is a proud sponsor of Copper Country Today. This legendary weekly radio program has gone on for decades and has helped listeners dive into important issues here in Michigan's Keweenaw Peninsula. Now, more than ever, we need this kind of in-depth local storytelling in our world. That's why we're happy to help take it to the next level by sponsoring the radio show's debut as a podcast. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Simply search Copper Country Today. Learn more about Portage Health Foundation by visiting phfgive.org. Welcome back to the second segment of Copper Country Today. We didn't know until just a few days ago if there was going to be a Copper Dog 150 this year, or really even if there was going to be one, what it was going to look like. But now we do have the answers on that. And I welcome to the program uh, Doug Harrer from the Copper Dog 150 Board of Directors. Uh, Doug, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Todd, for having me. This, I know, has been a real problem for you and the members of the board and the organizers of the Copper Dog 150 to try to decide whether you can hold a race safely in our COVID-19 environment. And the verdict came down this week that you think you can pull it off. Yeah, it was a real tough decision, Um, you know, working with the health department and waiting to see what our, our governor was going to do. Um, you know, had us kind of on the edge of our seat of, you know, what, what we were going to be able to pull off, uh, the season and, uh, with the, the count of 25 people in a thousand square foot area, we felt that we could, uh, manage it and, and make it work. Because on one hand, I can't think of a more socially distanced sport than dog sled racing. Once you're out on the trail, you're all by yourself. But it takes a lot of people to make that work. Yeah, exactly. You know, kind of our our biggest areas where we have most of our congestion is when we do our vet checks, um, you know, because you have vets walking around and, and you have the handler and the musher and and some of the officials and then, and then our start, um, you know, we are going to have a roped off area where our start is going to be. And, uh, um, actually you're one of our numbers that we plan inside that thousand square foot area, um, for our announcing, but, um, you know, we have to plan, you know, who can be in that thousand foot er- square foot area. And, uh, we came up with all the right people and, and figured those two areas we'd be able to make it work no problem. The Copper Dog 150 has always had a logistical challenge to it in terms of setting out the routes and the times and things of that nature. Who knew we would ever face a logistical problem involving who could be within a thousand feet of the start? <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and, and this year has been very difficult for a lot of other races. You know, there's been some races that have had to cancel. Uh, because of this, because logistically they just didn't think that they'd be able to pull it off. And, uh, you know, we have, we have a well-oiled machine that we feel that, uh, we could do it this year. Now you have made a number of concessions to make this work. And the first big concession is that all of the big activities in downtown Calumet, they won't be happening. Yeah, that's correct. This year, um, you know, anyone that's been to a downtown start has seen thousands, you know, thousands of people. And uh, we just can't have that. Um, you know, as an organization, we we feel that the Copper Dog name is, is very uh, honorable in our, our community. 
and we need to keep it that way. And, and if there's some rules that we need to follow, um, you know, that's what we're going to do. So this year, uh, our race is just going to be between Eagle Harbor and Copper Harbor, um, where we can keep our numbers down um, with spectators as much as possible. So at this point, you're saying to most spectators at least, um, sorry, but you're going to have to stay home this year, follow the race online? Yeah, that's exactly it. We want we want everyone to watch us virtually, you know, over the over the internet and and hopefully we can get a little bit of uh TV coverage in there as well, but uh we're going to have Facebook live and and we're going to be pretty active on on the uh on the computer as much as possible. Now, on the other hand, <laughs> Eagle Harbor and Copper Harbor are not exactly hubs of real fast, high-quality internet access either. Yeah, that's going to pose a challenge for us. Um, Eagle Harbor, we know that we're not going to have an issue with it. Um, and where our uh, start and finish is in Copper Harbor, we know that we're going to be able to um, bounce off of uh, the Wi-Fi up there. So we are going to be able to get some things up on the website for people to take a look at. Let's lay out how this is going to work. We've we've dropped the middle-level race, the two-stage race. Yeah, that's correct. Um, this year we're running the 150, and our 150 is going to consist of an eight-dog team with a 10-dog pool. And what that means to people is... Uh, Basically, when you've seen the race in the past for the 150 for our big race, you've always seen 10 dogs on the line. Um, this year, mushers are going to be able to just have eight dogs on there, and they're going to have two extra dogs to choose from each day if they choose to switch out dogs. Um, so it's going to look a little bit different. It's going to be uh, three stages still, three days. Uh, but it's only 107 miles compared to uh, 150 miles. And uh, that first leg, that first stage is from Eagle Harbor to Copper Harbor, which is 35 miles. Um, stage two, which is day two, is Copper Harbor to Copper Harbor, and that's 34 miles. And then our last day from Copper Harbor to Eagle Harbor, and hopefully that'll be over Brockway, and that'll be 38 miles. And the shorter route is that a concession then to the eight dog teams as opposed to the 10 dog teams or is that more of a okay Uh, because the other option is i know that one of the things you have done is tried to minimize the number of road crossings so that you have fewer groups of people who are going to be hanging out to make the race work yeah that's exactly right the the least amount of road crossings that we could manage um with our covid safety plan uh, definitely worked out for us being in Eagle Harbor and Copper Harbor just because there's very limited um, uh, road crossings in those, you know, between those two uh, communities, which is, you know, works out well for our, our safety plan. So what kind of volunteer effort are you going to need to make this work? Obviously, not as many as we would have for a normal Copper Dog 150, but we're still going to need some folks. Yeah, you know, um, the interesting thing this year is I've always said, Todd, that our community is the best. Um, We have the best volunteers. We have the best community um, you know, and, and picking up our volunteers, they've just been waiting for us to, um, open up registration and believe it or not, if you go to our, regist- if you go to our, uh, volunteer site, it's almost full. Um, but there's still some openings at some road crossings and, and the only thing that we ask is anyone that's, um, going to be helping out at road crossings or, handling dogs, if they can uh, please wear a mask, because that is part of our, our COVID safety plan. And everyone's going to get emailed a, a uh, flyer saying that we, we are going to require masks. 
Now, the mushers who come in for this, uh, they, of course, are the ones who really make this work. We can't do it without them. And they have always, as I've spoken with them over the years, been so complimentary of the race that we put on and the volunteers who work so hard on it. Uh, What has their season been like? Have they had fewer races that they could attend? Have they had to travel farther? What have they done to try to keep their dogs in shape and busy? You know, (laughs) That has been a problem because um, there has been uh, two main races that most of the mushers that come to our race um, uh, within that circuit um, have canceled this year. And, of course, we all know due to the lack of snow, we've had a a nice break from winter for the most part this year. Um, Just haven't had the miles to train. Um, Some of the ones that have had the miles to train um, are, are very appreciative of, of a race. Uh, matter of fact, most of them just had their first race last weekend in uh, Duluth, Minnesota. Um, but uh, we, what we noticed was as soon as we opened registration, we've never had this happen before, but uh, we filled up with 28 mushers. We only took, we only had 20 open spots, which we just raised 25 but we had 28 mushers sign up within four minutes. Wow. That's like yeah, rock, that's like rock concert ticket sales, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it was one of those things where if your computer had a glitch or it had a hiccup real quick, uh, they weren't getting in. Talking, um, And that happened to a couple people. Wow. Talking with Doug Haar from the Copper Dog 150, which will take place the final weekend this month. It's the 26th, 27th, and 28th, if I'm remembering my calendar correctly. You got it. All right. Well, it's uh, it starts the day after my birthday, so it's a, <laughs> and I'll officially be a senior citizen by then. So you got to. Oh you, boy, you, you, well, you got well, you got you right. You got to get me a big chair now to sit in and all of that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> so um, it it must have been though, um, and perhaps this is something that works for us into the future, that if we're one of the few races that can stretch out and offer an opportunity for mushers this year, does that build some goodwill for us in that mushing community? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, You know, it it speaks uh, volumes with um, us having our race this year and and trying to figure out a way uh, to do it. you know, as we were talking earlier, that there were a few races that didn't happen, and whether that was because you know the the pandemic, they they didn't know how to go about uh, setting up the race, or you know if it was uh, the twenty five people in a thousand square foot, whatever it may be, um, all the feedback that we've gotten from our mushers um, and and even mushers that aren't running this year is just they, they thank us. They thank us for um, thinking outside the box and, and, you know, planning something for them. Um, because ultimately, you know, it's, it's for our community, but because we can't have spectators, it's also more so for the, the mushers this year and, and the uh, dogs. Yeah, and that's something that's really going to be missing. I get such a charge every year of standing in that announce booth at the opening ceremony and looking down Fifth Street and seeing a thousand or more people out there having a good time with their families. That's something I'm personally, I'm going to miss that this year. Yeah, we are too. Um, You know, and, and that had been talked about, you know, do we do we just do it anyways and, and take the chance and, and, uh, you know, it's the hard decision. And, and the thing that everyone argues about is, you know, do you wear a mask? Don't you wear a mask? And, and, you know, Todd, it was, it was a very difficult decision on how we were going to portray, portray our race this year, um, in the public's eye. And, uh, this we felt was, you know, important to keep going, um, but also trying to make it where our spectators can still see and enjoy the race, you know, from the warmth of their their home this year, uh, since they can't be out there with us. Now I know that that's always been a, a good weekend for some of the downtown Calumet businesses, the restaurant owners, and some of the the retail stores. Um, 
how have they reacted to not having it? Uh, bummed. You know, we we have a lot of uh, businesses in Calumet that, that tell us that's their best year, uh, best day of the year, excuse me, on uh, Friday night. And uh, to not have it there is, is difficult. I mean, it's it's difficult to see even as I, I travel, you know, I live in Calumet and I drive down uh, the road and, and I'm a window shopper. I like looking at the windows and seeing what everyone's got going in their windows. And usually this right now you see copper dog stuff and, and this year you don't see it. And it's, it's kind of sad to see it, you know, and it's sad for the businesses not to be doing it, but uh, um, we totally understand, you know, it's, they have a business to run, and, and hopefully we can still get people in their doors is, is my hope. And it's certainly an understandable feeling on their part because it is something that they have not only come to rely on, but they have also, many of them, invested in each year as sponsors. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things that we always talked about um, is community vitality and, uh, you know, putting into the community and and it's hard when you know you're not going to be affecting a community this year. Um, it's it's difficult, and and we have made sure that this year when we when we do our our vet checks are still going to be at Incredible Bank. Um, one of the things that we're going to do is we're still going to ask the mushers to you know since you have some time in town please go visit some of those businesses that are going to miss us this year. Well, and thankfully, at least the restaurants can now offer some limited interior seating. So hopefully that the, they can take advantage of some of the traffic that's coming in town, even if it's only just the, the mushers and their friends. You know, and that's just a little thing that we talked about as well is, is letting, um, you know, when we go, to Copper Harbor and Eagle Harbor, when we go as as officials to to eat, um, leave leave the the restaurant for uh, you know the customers that are in town, and we're going to eat outside and uh, do to go, and but make sure we're still um, you know supporting these businesses. Yeah, patronize the business so that they get the value, but leave the table space so that the visitors yes. can can step in. That's thoughtful. I like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's very important to us. You know, it, again, what a difficult year. You know, uh, we've we've all felt it in some way, and uh, we you know we hope that. You know, again, people understand that uh, why we're doing it the way we're doing it this year. Yeah, and take any opportunity you can to try to provide whatever support you can to our local businesses who are really, really struggling, and we really need to support them in every way that we can. How has this reflected in terms of your sponsorship for the event? Because obviously you still have expenses involved in this. You still have prizes, uh, prize money that you have to dish out for the mushers who are coming. What has happened to your sponsorship support? You know, um, we have been very, very happy with uh, the money raised this year. We figured that it was going to cost about $26,000 to run our race this year. And we have uh, well over 32000 that has been uh, sponsored to us, and that's in cash. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's very good. You know, really, really good. Not, not uh, where we normally are. Um, because, you know, we're not in Calumet this year, of course, but, um, Joni and Ruth, um, on our sponsorship team have really worked it hard and found a lot of people that are just thankful that we're still, you know, running the race and, and, and they appreciate that. And so it's, it's been a great, uh, great year for, uh, sponsors still, um, you know, following Copper Dog and, and sponsoring us. Uh, without our sponsors, we have nothing. And it's a great vote of support, not only for this year's race, but also for the future of this year's race, because I think that there are a lot of events, unfortunately, that maybe are called off this year, 
that never come back. It's hard to bring an event back when it hasn't happened, particularly one that's staffed by such a big volunteer effort as the Copper Dog 150. The fact that it's happening this year is a good sign that it'll continue next year and, and beyond. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's it, to me, uh, as an individual and as a board, I can, sp- I can speak for our board, it's very, you know, doing Copper Dog is very important to us because we feel that we have made a name for ourselves and we need to keep that name going because, you know, let's face it, the end of February and, and March is a difficult time of year and, and it's a great weekend to just have a race and, and uh, you know, when we're able to get the people out there, get the people out there, you know, going into the businesses and everything. So we talked a little bit about how the revised 150 is going to be set up. We didn't talk about the other race, which is the Copper Dog, the single stage. What are we calling it this year? It's been different lengths over the years. What are we calling it? We're calling it the Copper Dog 25. Now, that doesn't mean that we're doing 25 miles or or anything uh, crazy like that. Um, This is more of what we call a sprint race. Um, this is going to be one stage. They're going to start in Copper Harbor and they're going to finish in Copper Harbor. And, uh, they're only going to do 13 miles this year. And um, it will be on Saturday because normally the single, yeah, normally the single stage race has been part of the start on Friday night. And it's just been a Friday night event the last several years yep. from Calumet downhill to gay, which has been a lot of fun. I'm told by some of the mushers who've been involved in it this year, it will be a Saturday race. That is correct. It's going to be on Saturday. It's going to happen right after our 150 goes out. Then we'll uh, send out the the short race, um, which is six dogs, um, which is normally what it is. Uh, They'll go 13 miles, and they're going to go fast. Um, That's going to be a real quick race. Uh, We probably won't even have time to get a full luncheon uh, just because um, more than likely they're going to be running between Uh, 15 and 20 miles an hour. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand is that a a larger dog team does not necessarily go faster than a smaller dog team. The larger dog team gives you more stamina maybe to go more distance, but a smaller team can go really, really quickly. Oh, yeah. Um, Last year, our our uh, champion, our, the guy that won the race last year, did it in an hour and 31 minutes, and he went 15.4 miles per hour of an average. Um, that's cooking. You know, that's, think about your, you know, driving your vehicle and, and watching the dog run next to your vehicle. You know, that's, that's moving pretty good at an average pace, where um, our long race, is, you know, a little bit slower where they're averaging around 12 um, miles per hour. So it's it's uh, definitely uh, the longer races, uh, teams is built more for distance where the uh, uh, six dog and the short race is more built for uh, a quicker pace. Yeah, I'm trying to do the math in my head here. I don't know how many people you have signed up, but if it's 20 and we send them out at two-minute intervals, that's 40 minutes. And if they can get the course done in an hour, we pretty much uh, just convert right from sending them out to welcoming them back in. Just about, yes. It's going to be pretty quick. Um, And it's going to be exciting because they'll be on top of each other, but... uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's going to be interesting 13 miles. That's for sure. And this is the first time we've ever done an out and back race where we can actually set up and send them out and welcome them back in. It, it, we've never done that before. Yeah. The, the best part about that was there's only one road crossing, you know, so that's the, the beautiful part of it is it's just minimal people that need to be there for, for that at particular race. Um, so a lot of planning involved with making sure that we can keep our numbers down, you know, with how many people are, are, you know, with, within distance of each other. Talking with Doug Harrer from the Copper Dog 150, you mentioned the crush that you had to get people registered. Were our local mushers able to get in? Are we going to see a lot of our local uh, favorites in the race? We have, uh, a few local mushers, uh, one of 
I, matter of fact, I just uh, seen one of our mushers that didn't make it in, but he's hoping to make it uh, yet uh, with some cancellations. But uh, uh, Tom Bauer uh, is uh, uh, not going to be in the race this year. Hopefully, he'll he'll get in if some other teams drop. Um, but uh, yeah, we still have some local people in there. The highs are in there. Um, they're from Mohawk. Um, I believe we have, um, oh, I think it was, uh, uh Susan Serafini, uh, in there. She's from Hancock. Yeah. Um, we have Jerry in there as well. And, and Jerry's from Hancock as well. So, um, yeah, we have a few local, uh, folks in there still. Well, we'll cross our fingers for Tom Bauer. I just can't imagine doing this race without Tom as important as he has been to it. It would certainly be ironic if we had to do this without him and yet it's just that kind of year and well uh, he uh just ran the race last weekend at the bear grease and in, in uh, duluth minnesota and and he had a good run so he's hoping that he can get into our race this year as well well i hope that he can get in as well now for people who are looking forward to this again we're talking february 26th 27th and 28th how will they be able to view the video that's produced from this and see the starts and the finishes and such? If they go to our website at www.copperdog150.com uh, or if they're linked to Facebook, they should be able to uh, view us on there as well. Um, also, um, uh, listen for radio updates um, and hopefully we get some news coverage as well. So, um you know, but follow along on our website. That's going to show you uh, what place people are in at the end of each stage, and it's going to be an it's going to be an exciting race this year. And I will do my best to provide updates on ninety seven seven The Wolf and KBR one hundred two as well. Doug Howard, thank you. I'm looking forward to being part of the race again this year. Todd, we're looking forward to having you, and thank you for having us on today. Doug Harr from the Copper Dog one hundred and fifty Copper Country Today, brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. When our community is in need, the Portage Health Foundation is here to answer the call. In 2018, we were here on the front lines helping homeowners get their lives back. And now with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're right here with the many nonprofits who help serve our community. We've provided funding to Senior Meals, Keweenaw Family Resource Center, and 31 Backpacks. We launched a Wi-Fi hotspot network to help families stay connected, and we have much more planned. If you want to donate to help our community's recovery, visit phfgive.org COVID-19 or call 523-5920. I hope you enjoyed our Copper Country Today program this morning. Again, thanks to our guests, Nora Lajo and Steve Ajo from the Copper Island Academy and Doug Harrer from the Copper Dog 150. Copper Country Today is heard each Sunday morning at 7 on 97.7 The Wolf, 8 on 99.3 The Lift, and 9 on KBEAR 102. And you can listen to our podcast anytime at QNRReport.com, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and a number of other streaming platforms. Copper Country Today is brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. The Portage Health Foundation is making 40 scholarships available for colleges and technical training. Some are for high school students, others for non-traditional adult students. Visit phfgive.org for details. This is a copyrighted public affairs production of Houghton Community Broadcasting.